Man, it is so good to see you here. Turn to someone and say, praise the Lord. Listen, there's no other way to view the last nine years of our church, but through the lens of that statement, praise the Lord. Only Jesus, only Jesus, only Jesus could do what has been happening here. And I'm so grateful to just be a part of it. For those of you who are watching in our outdoor environment, good morning. For those of you who are still watching online, more than half our church right now still watching online every Sunday while they're waiting to be able to come in an environment that's safe um, for them and for your extended family members. We miss you. We love you, but, but we're with you. If we can do anything to serve you, let us know you are an important part of our church, even where you are. Um, we will be here when you come back, but we will miss you until then. Um, hey, I need you all. I need y'all to lie to me this morning. Can you, can you lie to me one time? Is that okay? I've already asked God to forgive you. I need you to lie to me one time. As you watch that video, have I aged since I started this church? The answer is no, no. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's like, like, God, thank you. Planting a church is like the fountain of youth for some. Um, clearly not me. It's been so fun to watch so many of your little kids in that video who are now interns um, at our church. It's just been amazing. Week three of a series that we're in right now called Made for This. This series has a theme verse and it has a premise. The theme verse of the series is Ephesians 2.10. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do, which means God made you he made you to know who Jesus was, and once you knew who Jesus was, to be transformed in a way that you discovered a brand new purpose and priority in life so you could go do what God created you to do, things he created for you to do before you were even born. That's the verse behind this series, and the premise of this series is pretty basic. We believe God has created every follower of Jesus to know God, to be transformed, to discover their purpose and make a difference. If you are a follower of Jesus, God wants you to, to know him intimately and personally, not just know about him, but to know him. God wants your life through that knowledge of him and his relationship and his love for you to be deeply transformed. And then once that happens, he wants you to reprioritize and reorganize your life around what his call and his purpose for your life is so that when you begin to do it, you will make the difference that he has created you for. That is our goal in this series. It's what we're pressing towards today. Two weeks ago, we talked about knowing God. Last week, we talked about being transformed. Today, we are pressing on to discover our purpose. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to John chapter one. That's where we'll be in our Bible study time today. John chapter one, as Jesus begins to call the first of his disciples in John chapter one, we've got three goals for today. I'm just going to move through them pretty quickly. Here's what, we want to, here's what we want to happen in today's Bible study time together. Number one, to discover God's desire to move in our world. Number two, to consider God's desire to move through our lives. And number three, to reprioritize our lives around our highest calling. We're going to learn today that God wants to work in our world, but his plan is to do that through your life. But for that to have to happen, like you, you got to reprioritize some things so you can go and get on mission. That's the goal today, to walk away from here saying, there's no doubt God wants to work in, my, in our community. There's no doubt he wants to use you to do that. I guess the question is, are you willing to do that? Those are the goals that we're going to look at today. As we get ready to jump in, we're going to pray. But before we pray, let me say it's day eight of 21 days of prayer. For those of you who have been tracking with us in 21 days of prayer, on page 20 and 21, you're going to find your prayer guide for today. Our goal today is that you take between 15 and 30 minutes to fill this out so that when you come tomorrow, you can pray for everything in your week this week. This will say everything happened on Monday through Friday 
These are the things I need to pray for. If you'll take about 30 minutes to fill this out tomorrow morning when you come, you'll be ready to pray. Our prayer time today is going to be focused on what followers of Jesus have been doing since the Sunday he stepped out of the tomb. Since Jesus stepped out of the tomb on the first Sunday, followers of Jesus have said Sunday morning is going to be special and different for us. That's the day Jesus rose from the dead. So on Sunday morning, we're going to reprioritize life. To, to celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is moving, that Jesus is connected to my life, and he wants me to be alive and moving with him. So that's going to be our prayer time today. Would you bow your heads with me here and watching outside and watching online? Take a deep breath if you haven't done that today and ask God on this Resurrection Sunday to speak to you today. Acknowledge in prayer that Jesus is alive that his mission is ongoing and that because of him, you can have spiritual life and be a part of that mission. God, that's our prayer that you would speak to us about those things today. Make it clear that you are on mission in our community. Show us our part in that work and then use today to help challenge and reshape our lives around your purpose for us. That's our prayer. And God, we ask these things in Jesus' name and everyone said... Amen. John chapter 1, one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his disciples, writing about his life and writing about one of the days he began to call his early disciples. We pick up in verse 43, and John says this, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there, Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. This is a guy who shares his heart honestly. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Jesus said, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. I know what you said about me and what you think about where I grew up. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, which means teacher, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel, Jesus said, you believe because I told you, I saw you under the fig tree. You're going to see greater things than that. Then he added, very truly, I tell you, you're going to see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. He told Nathaniel, you are in awe today. You have been impacted today. You have been changed today because you know the God of the universe. You've been looking forward to his savior and you now believe that I'm him because you know God, because you have met me, your life is going to be transformed. But if you think that's great, you ain't seen nothing yet because I'm calling you to go on mission with me. And if you think it's nice to know me and you think it's impactful to be transformed by me, wait till you start serving with me because heaven is going to open up and literally God is going to move on earth. You ain't seen nothing yet. And if you're here today and you know God, I'm sure that's deeply impacted your life. And if you are beginning to be transformed, that should be deeply impacting your life, family, and friendships. But if you have not yet discovered why God created you and joined him in his purpose for our community, in his world, his kingdom, you ain't seen nothing yet. And I promise you the best is yet to come. Because when you discover who God created you to be and you start doing that, it is the most fulfilling thing that you will ever do for yourself and the most impactful thing that you will ever do for the world. And as we dig in today, we're going to see three things that kind of make those truths come alive. I'm just calling them truth number one, truth number two, truth number three. Truth number one, God desires to move in our world. I'm going to give you the ABCs of this spiritual truth. You say, how do you know that? 
How do you know God wants to move in our world? Christian, I look at our world, I think God wants to destroy our world. I would think God wants to end our world. Why do you think God wants to move in our world and not just do away with it? Well, a couple of reasons. Letter A, because God has the power to end the world if and when he wants to. If he wanted to, he already would have. He did in Genesis 7. In Genesis chapter 7, through a, through a great flood, an event that a lot of Christians who study science very, very carefully believe kind of folds over in the, the Pangea theory of a one-world continent that kind of broke apart and floated to seven. A lot of scientists believe at the flood that, as Scripture said, the great deep broke open and the heavens poured forth their rain, and this continent that was one literally broke apart all was submerged underwater and then rearranged where it is today. God created a flood that would kill the entire world. God has the power to destroy the world if he wanted to. And he actually said he was going to again. He just said, next time we'll be through fire and not through water. God could, if he wanted to, destroy the world that we're living in. In Genesis 17 and 18, he destroyed two cities named Sodom and Gomorrah because they were so evil and wicked through seismic activity and volcanic interruptions. Literally, the world exploded and then caved in on itself. They think those ancient cities are now beneath the Dead Sea where the greatest sulfur content in the world lies. God could, if he wanted to, destroy everything. Say, how do you know he doesn't want to? Because he told us not to pray that he would judge the world. He told us to pray that he would transform the world. He prayed this prayer that this world would be transformed through his rule and through his reign. When his disciples came to him and said, could you teach us how to pray? He said, yes. And he gave them a model prayer that we call the Lord's prayer. And kind of the central part of that prayer said, pray that my kingdom comes and my will will be done. What are those two words there? On earth. You need to pray when you pray that I will come from heaven to earth. Pray that my will is done and my kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, you need to pray that I'll transform the world, not destroy the world. There's so many Christians in 2020 who are thinking, man, I, I wish I could go to heaven. Jesus is in heaven saying, I wish I could go to Lee Summit. I wish somebody was praying that my kingdom would come and my will would be done on earth on earth as it is in heaven. So there's this prayer that God would come and you say, yeah, but things are so bad. Things are so bad. There's even, we learn a purpose for what seems like a delay in God's judgment and God dealing with the sin and the evil in our world. In two weeks, we'll start a new sermon series um, at our church called The Way of Jesus. It was initially going to be just 10 weeks in the Beatitudes, the very first part of the Sermon on the Mount, learning how Jesus said followers of his live their life. But as I looked at everything happening in 2020, as I looked at what I believe will kind of play out in 2021, I thought, you know, there are no answers but Jesus. We just need to talk about Jesus. We need to learn about Jesus. We need to follow the way of Jesus. And I said, you know what, guys, we're just going to, when we get done with the Beatitudes, we're just going to keep going through the Sermon on the Mount. We're just going to stay in Matthew verse by verse until we're done. We'll probably be there for well over a year. We're just going to learn the way of Jesus because I think it's the only thing that's going to work moving forward. When we get to Matthew 24, you're going to hear the disciples ask Jesus, when is the end of the world coming and what's it going to look like? Jesus will then cross the street from the temple, the Kidron Valley. He'll go up on the Mount of Olives and he'll give what's known as the Olivet Discourse. Next year when we get there, we'll study all kinds of things about end times and what the Bible says. But he said this to his disciples about when the end would finally come. He said, the gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
According to missionaries today, there are still 2,000 unreached people groups in our world who don't have one word of scripture, who have not heard the name of Jesus. And there is a belief that when they finally hear about Jesus, he will come. If some of you are thinking, I wish Jesus would just hurry up and speed up the process, so does he, maybe you should become a missionary. Maybe you should be one of the people to go translate the 2,000 languages that haven't heard about Jesus yet and do that, or find a missionary who's doing that, start giving them money, start supporting them, start figuring out a way to help speed up the end, because I'm, re- I'm, ready. I'm ready for it. Second Peter, in Second Peter chapter 3, people said, I don't think your Jesus is really going to come back and judge the world. If he was, he would have already done it. Peter said, no, you don't, like, you don't understand. The Lord's not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. You just think he's lazy, patient. You think it's not true. Instead, he's only patient with you because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You say, I want Jesus to hurry up and come back. We'll start telling all your friends who don't know him about him. That will help. That'll help. That'll speed up the process. See, God desires very, 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 very clearly to move in our world. But what these two verses show us in Matthew 24 and 2 Peter chapter 3 is God desires to move in our world, but he desires to move through our lives. His plan to move in Kansas City is for you to get busy in Kansas City doing what he's created you to do. God desires to move through our world, but he desires to move through our lives. He wants to move in our world through our lives. In 586 B.C., Um, Jerusalem was destroyed. The city of Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem, the temple of Jerusalem were all destroyed by the Babylonians, a king named King Nebuchadnezzar that you can study in history, a powerful king in his time. And over the next 150 years, some of my favorite books in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, would would be written. Um, Daniel was written in that 150-year period. Ezra and Nehemiah were written in that 150-year period. Esther was written in that 150-year period. Ezra actually happened in the 480s BC, so about 100 years after Jerusalem fell. We read that Persia had defeated the Babylonians, and the media Persian king had married a girl who was Jewish. He just didn't know she was, he just didn't know she was Jewish at the time. And he had a guy who ruled and reigned in his government who hated Jewish people because he said they'll never worship anyone but their God. They're going to be a headache in our empire. They had 127 provinces that stretched from India to North Africa. And he said, would it be okay if we killed all the Jews in those places? I think it'd be easier to expand our empire. And the king said, I don't, I don't know any Jews. Go ahead. Um, so they wrote an edict that they were going to kill all the Jews. And Esther's cousin, who was living in the capital city, heard about it, who was Jewish, and he told Esther, you, like, you probably ought to do something because one of two things are going to happen. One, your husband eventually is going to find out you're Jewish and you're going to die like the rest of us. Or two, because you're Jewish and you know him, maybe you can help us. Maybe your voice matters. And in Esther 4.14, we see this famous Old Testament verse. Mordecai says to his cousin Esther, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family are going to be cut off. And who knows? But that you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. I love Mordecai's theology because Mordecai said, God will continue to move through the world. He always moves through his people. If you don't do anything, someone else will figure it out. I'm confident God is going to move. But who knows, who knows if maybe he didn't put you right where you are for this very thing. Who knows if maybe this isn't your thing, your purpose for us. As we read the book of Esther and study the spiritual principles in it, we learn that while God still moves in spite of our inaction, Esther, if you don't do anything, somebody will. His plan sure does seem to want to include our action. 
Let's make a very, very clear journey. If we choose not to keep living on mission in Lee Summit, does that mean God is done with Lee Summit? No. No, it's not. God is going to move in our city with or without us. I think he would prefer to move with us. I think he wants to invite us into our plan because our greatest fulfillment will be in doing what God created us to do and our church's greatest impact will be when we all do what God has created us to do. It's interesting when you study the story of Noah and his ark and of Abraham pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah, it wasn't just the presence of absolute wickedness that saw those cities destroyed. It was the lack of a presence of any righteousness. In Genesis chapter 6 and 7, the world was evil through and through, and there was only one guy in the world, one guy in the world who had any kind of relationship with God. And he would take seven family members, and in an ark, they would be the only people to accept God's offer of rescue from this cataclysmic flood. There were only eight in the whole world. The rest of the world was destroyed. In Sodom and Gomorrah, there were less. There were only three, only three who took God's escape plan. And really, there was only one because Lot had to drag two of his daughters with him kicking and screaming. They didn't even, they didn't want to go. There's no one there to stand up for anybody. But when you look a few thousand years later, when you look a few thousand years backwards, here's Jesus celebrating the Passover meal with 11 of his closest friends in the middle of the height of the Roman Empire, which was probably every bit as wicked as Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 17 and 18 from what we read in history. And he doesn't destroy it. He looks around the table of 11 and says, I can work with this. I can work with this. Let's go. 50 days later, those same disciples would be celebrating now the Feast of Pentecost, but without Jesus. Another Jewish festival, Jesus had ascended into heaven and as 120 of them gathered to pray, God sitting in heaven looked over and said to the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, we can work with this. Go help them. Go help them. We can work with this. And I think God in 2020 is looking down on Lee Summit and he's seen churches like ours and other great churches in our city. And I think there's more than one. I think there's more than one in our community. I think there's more than eight in our community. I think there's more than 11 in our community. I, I think there could be as many as 120 just at our church who are absolutely all in. And God's saying, I can work with this. I can work with this. I've always wanted to move in the world. I think I can move through these people. God desires journey. God desires to use your lives. You say, in what areas? Three really big ones. One, the great commandment. God wants every Christian to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants you to put Jesus on the throne of your life. He wants to be more important to you than anything in your life. The first thing he would tell his disciples in Scripture that's called great is this great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then we see three chapters later in Matthew 25, the great compassion. God says, once you begin to love me deeply, you're going to begin to see people like I do, and you're going to help those that I love. He said, in the end, there's going to be two groups of people. They're going to be like sheep and goats, easily distinguished, and the people who follow me will be those people who, when they see needs, they meet needs. But not only helping people who are in need, we see this great commission three chapters later, again in Matthew 28, you'll also reach those that God loves. So you'll see hurting people, but you'll realize as you meet their needs, their greatest need is a spiritual need, and you'll help them know who I am, and you'll go all over the world doing it. See the progression. You have to love God first so you can begin to see like God so that you can begin to have the impact God wants you to have. Also notice where these missions are given to us. Matthew, Matthew, Matthew. I can't wait to live in the life of Jesus with you through the book of Matthew over the next many, many months as we begin to study together. 
God wants to move in our world, but he wants to move through your life in our world. You say, I, I want that to happen. How does that happen? Number three, you're going to have to reprioritize your life around your highest calling. See, my, my hope today was to convince you of the first two things, to show you that it's very clear biblically that God wants to work here. He doesn't want to take us there. He wants us to bring him here. And the way he wants us to do that is how we live our life, how we love, how we help, how we reach. But I can't force this last one. This is not a, like, this is not a truth to learn. This is a point to either act on or not act on. You have to choose to rearrange your life and reprioritize your life around your highest calling. Let me show you in maybe a fascinating way for those of you who love the Bible like I do how this can happen. There are four times in Scripture that the 12 disciples are listed. Uh, one is Mark chapter 3, one is Luke chapter 6, one is Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, they actually only list 11 because Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, is gone by then. The other is in Matthew chapter 10. And in Matthew chapter 10, there are two words, three words, um, that aren't found in any other of the list of the disciples. And when you read them, they really, in the context of Matthew 10, stand out. Let me, let me read you the list, of the, the list of the disciples. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's also called Peter and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Those four are almost always listed first. Philip and Bartholomew. This is another name for Nathaniel, who we already called in John chapter 1. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. In other lists, he's called Judas. I, I think probably he began to use his middle name because he didn't want to be introduced as a disciple named Judas. So I'm thinking, I think he told probably after the whole Easter weekend thing, I think he probably said, hey, call me Thad. Um, like, don't call me the, uh, the other Judas. But he's mentioned as the other Judas in some text. Simon the Zealot, the other Simon, and Judas Iscariot, that's the bad one, who would betray Jesus. Four times this list is in Scripture. Only here are the words the tax collector mentioned. Only here. Four people wrote biographies about the life and ministry of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John wrote his about two generations after everyone else had written theirs, which means Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written up to 50 years before, 30 to 50 years before John. Those three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels, which means same because 90% of the content in those books is the same. A lot of scholars believe John read and was very, very familiar with those because 90% of the content in the book of John is different than those three. It was like he was the Paul Harvey of the disciples. It was like, hey, here's everything you've heard about Jesus. Let me tell you the rest of the story. So he kind of filled in all the gaps that were there. John wrote his Bible to kind of second, third generation Christians. Um, Luke wrote his gospel for non-Jewish Christians. He was a Gentile, wasn't Jewish. And he said, I need to tell people like me about this Jewish Messiah. So he wrote his book to, re to reach non-Jewish Christians. Mark wrote his book really to Roman Christians, Christians in the Roman world who needed to understand Jesus as a suffering servant, not as a really a conquering king. And Matthew was the only disciple to write his book very specifically to Jewish people. He was trying to convince faithful Jewish people that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. It's why he quoted more from the Old Testament than Matthew, um, uh, than Mark, Luke, and John combined. Matthew quotes more from the Old Testament because he's trying to prove to Jews from the Hebrew Bible, Jesus is your Messiah. So when he describes himself as Matthew, the tax collector, and he's the only one who describes himself that way, and then he lists on his team, Simon the Zealot, 
Anybody reading this 2,000 years ago who was Jewish would have stopped and had a really loud conversation about these two verses because it just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense that these were Jesus' people. Let me show you why. Let's talk first about Matthew the tax collector. The most despised people in Israel 2,000 years ago were Jewish tax collectors. The most despised disciple among the disciples would have been Matthew because he was not just a tax collector. He was a tax collector in Capernaum, which was one of the hubs of the fishing industry in Northern Galilee, which meant most of Jesus' other disciples would have not just paid taxes, but probably been ripped off by Matthew personally, they and their families. Matthew would have been the guy who would have upset when, when Jesus went to the synagogues of Galilee and Matthew was hanging out with him, that would have immediately made it more difficult for Jesus to do ministry. The Jewish people hated the tax collectors. Why? Because they worked for an oppressive government. They worked for Rome against them. And they also worked for themselves against the people of Israel. Say, what do you mean? Rome would hire them to collect taxes, but they could tell them you can collect as much as you want. Collect our tax and pay us but if you want to charge more, that's great. It's believed that the going rate was to charge four times what Rome would collect, which means if you're paying into all your FICA stuff on your payroll tax stuff, you pay the government 15% of all the money you get paid, the tax collector would take 60, give Rome 15, keep the other 45 for himself. And it was totally legal. Rome protected it. They encouraged it. They thought it was funny. It gave them more control over the people of Israel. That's who Matthew was. Tax collectors were trained and legal extortioners. They would tax even higher rates for people they knew something, that they, that they had something on. Tax collectors were not even allowed to testify in a court of law 2,000 years ago because they were professional liars and people knew they would so easily be bribed. If a tax collector gave testimony in a court of law, that trial was almost always kicked out. That's what Matthew was. He was one of those guys and he was protected by Rome. What did the Jews think of people like Matthew and the Jewish Talmud, which are spiritual sayings written about the Hebrew Bible during the New Testament era? The Jewish Talmud said, it's righteous to lie and deceive a tax collector. That was one of the things that Jewish rabbis taught in the first century. Now, I want to give this note just so I don't get in trouble. American Christians should not do this to the IRS. Just in case you think, like, the, like so Christian is telling, take like some of you are like bumping your wife. Write that down. It's righteous to lie and deceive a tax collector. I don't believe that. I don't think you should do that. I'm saying that's how tax collectors were seen 2,000 years ago. The spiritual leaders would say, you can, you can rip those guys off. And that's who Matthew was. In Luke 18, Jesus, when he was teaching people how to pray, said there were two people praying, a Pharisee who would get up and pray as long and loud as he could so everyone thought he was really spiritual, and a tax collector who stood afar off, just kind of beating his breast, saying, Lord, I'm not worthy. He stood afar off because tax collectors were not allowed to go into the temple or into synagogues. So like Jesus showed up and his buddy had to wait outside. Like that was Matthew, the tax collector. And what makes his story even more interesting is Mark and Luke both refer to him by Levi. So if you're just studying his story, a really good question to ask is, well, is his name Matthew or Levi? The answer is both. Matthew is his Greek name. Levi is his Jewish name. 
which for those of you who have studied any kind of scripture at all should lead you to ask a super insightful question. You say, wait a minute, Matthew's Jewish name was Levi? I mean, Matthew or Levi, that doesn't even matter once you realize that Levi was a Jew. Matthew's Jewish name was Levi? Hang on. Matthew's Jewish name was Levi? Yeah. You say, Christian, why is that important? Because 2,000 years ago in Israel, and even today in Israel, your name is always connected to your heritage. Your name's connected to your calling. Your name is connected to your purpose. And Abraham had a grandson named Jacob who had 12 sons who became kind of the leaders of what was known as the tribes of Israel. All of Israel was descended from these 12 sons. And if you descended from the tribe of Reuben, do you think you would or would not name your son Levi? Probably not. It would make no sense. If you descended from the tribe of Dan, do you think you would or would not name your kid Levi? Probably not. If you, decide, if you descended from the tribe of Judah, not going to name your kid Levi. You're only going to name your kid Levi probably if you descended from what tribe? The Levites. So who are the Levites? They were the people who were born with the role of being God's temple servants. They were the only tribe that was allowed to work in the temple. They were the only tribe that was allowed to serve at the temple. They were the only tribe that priests could come from. Moses was a Levite. Aaron was a Levite. It was the most spiritually honored tribe in all of Israel, but Levites were not allowed to own any of their own possessions. Their inheritance was their ministry. So a Levite would have to trust God for everything in his life, including everything that might be passed on to his kids eventually. His inheritance was his service for God and his trust that God would be faithful. And Matthew, or Levi said, yeah, I don't think I want to do that. I don't want to collect offerings from people so they can be close to God and maybe be left out in the cold myself. I want to collect taxes for Rome so my pockets can be lined and me and my family are always taken care of. Matthew, Levi, the tax collector. That's our guy. That's our guy. You say, man, that's a, it's an interesting character, very interesting character, until he met Jesus. And then everything changed. Because Matthew, the tax collector, Levi, who had rejected a life of ministry for money, when he meets Jesus, then all, leaves all that money for a greater mission from Jesus. See, when we meet Jesus, it reprioritizes the calling in our life, and we begin to live for a higher purpose and a higher calling Sometimes alongside people like Simon the Zealot. This is a really interesting cat in scripture, Simon the Zealot. You say, why is he called a zealot? Was he really, like, did he have a lot of passion? Was he like the crazy interns at Journey jumping around on the highway, like at 4 a.m., welcoming everyone to Monday morning prayer? Is that what it means to be a zealot? Like you're really passionate? No, that's not what it means. A zealot was actually a political class in Israel. Zealots were one of four dominant religious political parties during the time of New Testament history. The Pharisees were one, the Sadducees were one, the Essene community was one. Those were the guys who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. John the Baptist probably hung out with those guys. And the zealots were one. But the zealots were fringe. Fringe of the fringe, fringe. They were people who believed nobody should be in Israel but the Jews, and they were willing to kill for that. A lot of times in history, the zealot political class were described as terrorists. That, like, that's how they worked. They didn't vote you out. 
They slit your throat and then threw you off the side of the hill. That was the zealots. Jewish historian Josephus, in most of his writing, referred to them as dagger men because of their frequent assassinations. Here's how we're going to put up with our... Here's how we're going to deal with our political opponents. We're just going to kill them all. We're just going to kill them all. That was the zealots. That was the zealots. And by the way, interestingly enough, the most zealous of the zealous, the most zealous of the zealots were from Galilee. Where was most of Jesus' ministry? Galilee. The answer is Galilee. Now I'll ask the question, where was Matthew a tax collector? Wow, I gave you the answer before I asked the question. Let's try again. The answer is Galilee. Here's the question. Where was Matthew a tax collector? Galilee. Listen, Simon would have rather killed Matthew than been in a men's group with him. The only people, some of you are like, I got a guy like that in my men's group. You're like, yeah, like <laughs> Jesus, only Jesus, only Jesus. Listen, like the only people that zealotated more than the Romans were Jews who worked for the Romans. And now they're holding hands doing ministry together. Like what is, what has happened here? And the zealots, the zealots, these guys in Galilee were, were backwoods. They were kind of the rednecks of the Israelites. Remember how Peter was known when he was in Jerusalem? And they said, hey, you're one of Jesus' guys from Galilee. Remember how they knew he was from Galilee? Anybody? His accent. The way you talk gives you away. Peter would have said y'all instead of you all, right? Like they, like backwoods. Hannon, who's from Alabama, said Peter would have been them guys who called everyone, hey, buddy. Like, you know, it's like they, like they were backwoods. Like, I ain't never heard of Jesus. It's like, he's from Galilee, right? Like, hey, he's, he's from Galilee. They were backwoods. They were tough. They were barbaric. So Jesus would preach in Galilee if somebody strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. And they would say, no, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, you stab them in the throat. Like, that was the zealots. They pledged by death to never surrender to Rome, which is why in AD 71, 70 to 73 of them up on top of a fortress called Masada would kill their wife and children and then each other before the last one would commit suicide rather than surrender to the Romans. They are hailed as heroes today in Israel. When you go see Masada, they'll show you the video of these heroes who killed their families before they would be slaves to Rome. That was Simon the zealot, until he met Jesus. And then everything, everything changed. And Simon the zealot, this guy who was going to kill, rejected a life of political overthrow by force for a mission of spiritual transformation through surrender. The word surrender would not even have been in his vocabulary until he met Jesus. And then Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon the Zealot are all of a sudden together on Team Jesus. And both of them have a new calling. You say, what happened? Only Jesus, only Jesus, only Jesus, only by following Jesus could a tax collector and a zealot come together to reprioritize their lives around a higher calling. What I find interesting when you really study the tax collectors and the zealots, especially a tax collector named Levi, is I don't think either one of them ever left the affections of their heart. They just realized those affections could only be fulfilled in Jesus. What does Simon the Zealot want? He wanted the world that he lived in to be controlled by a righteous king. He didn't want to live under oppression. 
He didn't want to live in moral bankruptcy. He didn't want to live in a culture of sin. And he thought the only way to get out of it was to kill for it. But then Jesus invited him to become one of his followers. And he said, everything I've ever wanted can be found in Jesus. And he said, yes to Jesus. What did Levi, who became Matthew, the tax collector, want? He wanted security. He wanted stability. He wanted to know the people in his life would be taken care of. So he thought, I'll I'll do it financially. I'll take care of myself. And then he meets Jesus who offers care for him and all who would ever walk with him and an eternal security that could be found there. And he said, only in Jesus could I find what my heart has always desired. And both of these guys got on team Jesus and reprioritized their life around a new calling. They had their greatest fulfillment and their greatest impact on team Jesus. So let me ask you, are you on team Jesus yet? Are you experiencing your greatest fulfillment in life? Are you having your greatest impact in life because you're on team Jesus? In the first nine years of our church, we would have ended this message by saying, here's how you do it. Sign up to become a volunteer at Journey. And we think that probably will take you a half step closer, but that's so narrow in its focus. What we want is not for you to help our church. What we want for you is for you to discover your purpose. So whether it's at our church or another church, whether it's in Kansas City or another city, whether it's at this stage in your life or when you're great-grandparents, so for the rest of your life, you know who God created you to be, what God created you to do, and wherever you go, you do it. That is your life of fulfillment and impact that God is calling you to. And we believe through a spiritual pathway we've created called Growth Track that we can, we can get you kind of down the road of that process. So we don't want to ask you to sign up to volunteer today. I mean, if you want to, sure, we'd love to have you, but that, that's not going to get you where you need to go. Inside your bulletin, you're going to see this card. that says JCI Growth Track. It's a four-class process that we believe helps accomplish these things that we're talking about today. Understanding how God made you, what he called you to do, and how you do that in your everyday life, and how you can do it at a church when you end up at a church someplace. Our prayer is that every person in our church will go through this between now and January. Class one, step one is offered on the first Sunday of the month. Step two, second, three, third, four, fourth. You get the concept. This month they're after church. Starting next month in October, they'll be every Sunday forever and ever, hopefully. Um, during one of our services, so you can come for a service, go through a step of growth track, and then come before or after that to a church service. We'll help with your kids for both of those. We believe this is your pathway to learning your greatest fulfillment and your greatest impact. You can fill out this card, drop it off in the boxes as you leave today. If you're not a card person, you can grab your smartphone, text 474747 to two words, Journey Growth. It will send you a link where you can fill this out on your phone, get it back to our guys, and we will invite you into this process that we believe God made you for. Why is it important? Because learning is not the point. Learning is not the point in church. Learning in order to do is the point at church. James, Jesus' little brother, wrote a book to the church in Jerusalem that he pastored, and he said this, don't, listen, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. This word deceive in the Greek language is a mathematical term that means to miscalculate. It means to accidentally say two plus two equals five, which it never does. James says, don't miscalculate that hearing without doing has any value spiritually at all, because it doesn't. Hearing without doing comes together like two plus two equals five. It does nothing. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word and does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently 
into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they're going to be blessed in what they do. The person who gets deep in their faith and says, all right, let's really figure out who God is, what he wants me to be, how he wants me to serve him, and what he wants me to do with it. The person who looks like that and continues doing that their whole life, and then they do what they learn, that person will not only be blessed in their own life, they will be impactful in the lives of others. Journey, I want that so desperately for my life, for my wife and my kid's life, and for your life. That you would, by knowing God, by being transformed, by discovering your purpose, and by doing it, you'd live your most blessed and most impactful life. But some of you, We'll have to reprioritize some things to get on team Jesus and accept that new calling if you're willing to do it. I promise you, because I trust the promises of Jesus, I promise you, it will change your life. And through your life, you'll change our world. Can we pray together? Father, we come to you in Jesus' name today. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed, but hearts are open. God, speak to us in this moment right now. If you came in this morning separated from Jesus today, there can be a lot of reasons why, but if you leave separated, it's because you've chosen that. Because today you've heard that God loves you, that God knows you, that God desires to be in a relationship with you, and he offers you that forgiveness, that relationship, that purpose through his son, Jesus. If you've never connected to the God of the universe, if like those who read their testimonies today, Courtney and Leanne and Reese and Delshawn on our nine-year video, If you say, I need in my life what they have in theirs, what they got was Jesus. They didn't get journey, they got Jesus. And if you need Jesus today, just open your heart and respond to his invitation to know him. You can do that through praying. Scripture says, with the heart you believe, and then with the mouth you confess. So if you believe today, God is calling you to start a relationship with him. With your mouth, just pray. You don't have to pray out loud. Heaven hears the prayers of your heart. Just repeat this prayer or something like this after me, Jesus. It's repeated in my life from your heart to heaven. Jesus, I need you in my life. Forgive my sin and brokenness. Heal me and transform me. I surrender my will to your spirit. I surrender my life to your leadership. Today by faith, which means I do not understand it all, I'm willing to commit to it all to follow you. Let your promises come true in my life. Today, I want to become a follower of Jesus. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you just prayed that prayer with me here or outside or anywhere you might be watching online, in just a minute, Pastor Mike will come up and tell you how you can connect with us so we can pray for you, answer questions that you might have, and give you a few resources. But just before we close, let me talk to the Christians. Heads are still bowed, eyes are still closed, but hearts are still open. Christians, those of you who are followers of Jesus, God wants to work in our community and he wants to use you. Will you reprioritize your life to join his mission? If you will commit to that today, you commit by faith in prayer to say, God, I'm in. Before you even know what that means, you commit by faith, God, I'm in. And then you begin one step at a time, journeying through the spiritual pathway that God has called you to so that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If God is calling you Christians, just commit today in prayer. Just say, God, I'm in. I've been on the sidelines, but now I'm gonna get back in. Your first reprioritization will probably be an extra hour on Sunday for a month to get through growth track and then a total commitment to Jesus 
will happen as you know him more and discover what you're supposed to do like Tom Broadhurst realizing what God made you for. Commit today. Commit by faith. And then follow through because if you do, you will experience what Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot, experienced a life of impact and blessing through Jesus. Father, that's our prayer today. That you would help every individual who's here today to live a life of impact and blessing because of Jesus and his call on our life. God, our prayer is that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, starting in our hearts, our homes, our families, our church, our community, our city, our region, and then globally to the world. Lord, we are volunteering today. We are surrendering today to reprioritize our life. We don't need the security of Rome. God, we don't need the forcefulness of Simon the Zealot's violence. Lord, we need surrender to the God of the universe. Only Jesus can give us what we've always longed for. So Lord, we pursue you with passion. And Lord, we come to you with abandon today. Use us. We know you want to work in our world. Use us to do it. And by doing it, let us live our most blessed and impactful life. That's our prayer. And we ask these things in Jesus' name today. And everyone said together, amen. Let's stand and worship.